Okay, well, now let's move into, uh, we, we leave the surgeons, uh, just they can make few comments. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> right. and, uh, and then the interventionalist, and then we are going to get into the second part of Jupiter. Uh, yeah, Paul Ritker doesn't give us a rest. Always comes up. Anyway, let's discuss now Jupiter with the new data that evolved. Uh, if I can summarize, uh, the Jupiter trial um, evolved with the following hypothesis, and that is patients or individuals rather than patients with, uh, with a normal LDL, but with a high CRP. Uh, this is an inflammatory process that is developing. Let's give rosuvastatin and see if by dropping the CRP, we are now accomplishing something based on previous pilot data. And actually, the study was very well done when it was presented over 15,000 people with a normal LDL. We'll discuss in a moment what is normal. And a high CRP, and uh, it was a significant benefit by using rosuvastatin in terms of the endpoints. Now this time, the question is the following, is why this work? It worked because the CRP dropped and therefore this was beneficial, or at the same time was the LDL drop into levels below 70, about 70. And they tried to address this question uh, in this study, and actually it will be interesting to know the methodology, whether this subgrouping was done prospectively or is going back and whether it's, uh, is appropriate. But basically the study involved uh, over 15,000 people healthy men and women that participated in the original Jupiter study. And they assess, again, rasuvastatin 20 milligrams versus placebo on rates of non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, admission for unstable angina, and arterial revascularization. And they divide the study in three or four different groups in terms of how the data is being presented. And they say, first, if uh, the LDL is less than 1.8 uh, millimoles per liter, which is the equivalent of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter, uh, they found, irrespective of the CRP levels, they found a decrease or an improvement or benefit of 55%. So they say LDL dropping works. Then they went independently to the, uh, to the CRP, and they say if the CRP is less than than two milligrams per liter. Let's look at this data, and they found a 62% decrease uh, benefit. Then they pull it together, and they say, let's look at both, one less than 70 milligrams DL, the LDL, and the other less than two milligrams per liter, and they found a 65% reduction uh, or benefit. Very similar that the other two look independently. What was most striking in the studies when they look at LDL less than 70 milligrams DL and a CRP less than one. Then they found a 79% reduction. I can present to you easy, we could say, well, this is an inflammatory disease and actually both are important, the LDL drop and the CRP drop. And we can stop the discussion. But I have some questions about the methodology, whether, whether the method used really can answer this question. And I would like to ask maybe Harlan and then uh, Salim, and then we'll open this for discussion. I'm just asking about the method that this is being presented. 
So I always have to say in these, you know, Paul's my brother-in-law, so I have to be very careful about my uh, criticism of the study, but... Uh, you criticized him before. Yeah, right? and he knows too. <laughs> he will call you tonight. And no, my sister will call me, but the... <laughs> which is worse, but the... <laughs> I, I have a little... I think cut it's, this from the, <laughs> from the audience. I think it's an interesting study to look at, but I think it's very limited in what it can tell us about the underlying mechanism and what's going on with patients, or informing a clinical decision. I mean, the decision you have in front of you is whether you want to intensify therapy for someone who may not have hit a target. If you're a target-based treatment, and this isn't telling you, this is telling you you gave a fixed dose of a med, and some people had little more response and less, which may have been some of it compliance, may have been a whole range of different things, their own biology, but they have a different response. It doesn't exactly tell you that that's the reason why they have the lower risk. I mean, it doesn't, there still could be these pleiotropic effects, you know, the, the, how this all fits together, I think, is still a little bit of a mystery. And the idea that this proves that this is all about the inflammation, to me, is, is not quite clear. And, uh, but, you know, it's another piece of information. It's another piece of information that informs the debate. But I don't find it uh, definitive in terms of closing the case. I'd be interested what others think. Salim? I, I have two comments, one on exactly the question you asked about and one on overall Jupiter. Uh, the first thing is this has turned, this analysis has turned a randomized trial into an observational analysis. It's no longer a randomized comparison. And there are lots of differences in the people who had the lowest of the two versus the others. There was marked differences in BMI. There were marked differences in smoking rates. There were several other differences. So the people who actually got their CRPs way down and LDLs way down are not the same types of people who were at the upper end. The other thing is they didn't show us the same kind of analysis in the placebo group. Now, I'll tell you a story which actually will bring it home. Many years ago, we all remember there was a CDP trial. And in the CDP trial, overall, there was no benefit between clofibrate and placebo after post-MI patients. This is going back into prehistory. But then when you did an analysis in the clofibrate group, of the people who were compliant and the people who are non-compliant, the compliant people, big benefit. Well, makes sense. Let's stop there. Wait, Paul Cano who did it was cleverer. He did the same analysis in the placebo group and he found exactly the same thing. People who were compliant to placebo yeah. did better than the people who weren't. Mm -hmm. So that is the, so this is a highly methodologically suspect yeah analysis, and I will share, I'll spare Harlan the phone call. I think this is the kind of thing that could be misleading, yet at the same time is fascinating, should be published, should be reviewed. Can I make a more general comment on Jupiter now, or you maybe have 15 later? seconds. Okay. <laughs> well, Jupiter has been overemphasized out of the context of other rosuvastatin trials and other trials of statins. First, we not, nobody believes rosuvastatin is special any more than the fact that it does lower LDL a little more than the other statins. It raises a little bit more HDL. Not too, really, no? not, in, not in Jupiter either. First, I want to say there are four trials, big trials of uh, rosuvastatin. Three are totally neutral. And all of them had high CRPs. The corona study, the GC yeah. heart failure trial, and the Aurora trial. Now, you can all find reasons or excuses why they're different. Another trial with 
very large lowering of, of LDL was the recent C study in people with aortic stenosis where just as big an LDL drop was made. They got a 17% effect. And if you take the totality of the evidence of cholesterol lowering, the Jupiter trial is an outlier. The benefits are twice as large. I'm not saying there's anything no, I uh, think, suspect. I think, let, me, let, me, let me make a comment following you. However, I think to me the highest criticism, if there is a criticism, is that most of these people are obese, more of the hypertension. There's a lot of risk factors that increases CRP. What True. I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, we have to put the attention into the risk factor profiling <coughs> rather than on the CRP. This is what I'm trying to say. I think that's a valid point, and and we should discuss that. But another point I'm trying to make is this: the overall Jupiter trial is almost certainly inflated by the play of chance. When you do a lot of trials. Some trials will look very good. Some trials will look bad. Paul Ritker, yeah, and as well. Paul Ritker will make the phone call to you. <laughs> well, he has. Tonight. We've discussed it. I have three <laughs> comments which sort of play on the theme. That sure, the discussed. time is moving. Okay. One is these are arbitrary cutoffs. These are not validated yeah. cutoffs for a 70 LDL and CRP1. If you really want to do an analysis, you have to randomize to treatment targets. Otherwise, it's an observational uh, cohort. Second is, yes, in Corona, in Aurora, and in GC heart failure, we had a significant reduction in CRP and yet a null effect. And now you can argue that in the heart failure trials, most of the events yeah. were driven by, thromb by thrombo not thromboembolic, non-thromboembolic, you know, sudden cardiac death and, and pump failure-related death. But what about hemodialysis? Is, is the inflammation different in well, hemodialysis? Yeah, I guess, I guess the, the CRP will continue to be discussed. It has been for 15 years. But at least, at least the, the issue is one cannot get away with the fact of the data, of the original data that was presented. Today I had a little bit of a problem on the method being used. Right. And again, there are many types of statins. Uh, but I think, I think the study in itself was well carried out. What I think is the population we are dealing with, there are very few people who just have CRP only that you have to attack. So I wouldn't go into the whole population and start measuring CRP. Cindy, how do you see the CRP from the interventional side? Well, we have not been measuring CRP because most of the patients that we see already have high cholesterols. We try to uh, achieve a goal of less than 70. I think this is for Barry. Yeah, we certainly don't measure in the heart failure population. We, we don't. We, we have our patients come to us packaged. They're, they're ready for surgery. <laughs> <laughs> they have been prepared for yeah. you. Well, we don't we CRP, CRP or without it. And? No, I never measure it. Bob? So let me follow up on the comment of Salim and add to the comment you just made to Cindy. There were two small studies presented this week within the interventional sessions looking at loading with atorvastatin prior to PCI. Right. Small studies. Investigators nicely claim that these are preliminary data, um, show that there's less myoclonal infarction in the group of patients treated with the loading doses of, um, of atorvastatin relative to placebo. There's small bypass surgery trials, loading them prior to bypass surgery, uh, and the effect seems to be accentuated in people who have high CRPs relative to low CRPs and then get randomized to the statin. 
So I would go back to Salim's comment, which I think is exactly the right one. These are interesting observational data within the context of a randomized clinical trial. We've now had a hypothesis. Let's not overblow this and say, geez, now you've got to treat to the dual target. Well, now what we need to say is we've got a great hypothesis. There's a lot of little pieces of data. Let's go out and prospectively ask the yeah, question. I would agree. Right? Mm -hmm. And I want to just raise one other thing, which is the question that was just made on the side of the room. All of you talked about people that you knew were high risk already. And in that That's context, I don't think the CRP yeah. is helpful. For people who are, this was in population for people who otherwise don't look high risk, we know that actually there are some people for whom the CRP is going to identify them as actually reclassifying them into a risk. And I think and that's where Jupiter tested, and right. uh, I think Jupiter tested well, and for which the CRP would have utility. If it's, if it's going to be used, that's the population. I, I want to be fair to Paul. You know, I, I have an editorial coming out next week in The Lancet on this issue. On one hand, we must give him credit for generating a hypothesis, Correct. pursuing Absolutely. it yeah. uh, with passion. Absolutely. And he's done the best as he can. Now, I think we need people independent of Paul to replicate his findings, right. because that's then the ultimate or, test. Or, or I think to go this thing about what, should we titration study? Is, would it really? Would that strategy Somebody be better? Ought to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a good and, hypothesis. And I think, given the the emotional charge in this field, the ideal group should be somebody who's not Paul in this group. It could be anybody else in the group. He shouldn't have to carry he all shouldn't the water. Have to, yeah. No, because if a second group, say you or you or me or somebody else finds the same results, the world is likely to believe it. Yeah. So the third point that I was going to make uh, uh, was the single most important criticism in my mind about Jupiter is uh, why was it stopped prematurely? I, I, I uh, subscribe to the Gordon Guyart and McMaster's camp that trials should only be stopped prematurely for a mortality benefit. Yeah. And uh, in, otherwise you might be catching them at a random high or a random low. Yeah, that was a surprise too. Right, so that's, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, the fact that the cancer yeah. mortality was driving that and not cardiovascular mortality makes this point even more important. Yeah. I think the key point, there, there is some validity in what Sanjay says, it, that when you look at the reduction in mortality, it is largely due to reduction in cancer mortality. Right. That's not possible. Another thing that's not possible is in two years, to get an effect that's twice as large as any other trial done for five years is simply not possible. So there's a lot of, lot of implausibility issues with the trial. Now, I, where I differ with Sanjay is, I think they followed pretty standard stopping rules. They had a superb data monitoring committee. Uh, my good buddy, Rory Collins, chaired it. He doesn't stop things easily. Yeah. So I think I wouldn't criticize them on that, but I would actually agree with you. When you stop a trial early, you do get a high. And it had yeah. nothing, I mean, I will say this because I know it, Paul had nothing to do Absolutely. with it. Well, no, of course not. No, but I'm just being clear no, no. for our listeners because they may not understand how DSMBs work. The, the investigators at the, uh, the, the DSMBs over the investigators. So right. they make the decision completely independent the of the investigator. being on a DSMB, which we've all sat on, when data start looking either bad or good and <laughs> You know, these, you know that these are real events happening. Yeah. They, yeah. You follow you the rules. I agree with Salim. The reason Let me give why you an anecdote, actually, about Paul. Uh, the, the, he was notified that the trial was a stop, and this was the day before I saw him. And he says, Valentin, you know the trial has been stopped. And I say, what are the results? He says, no, I cannot say. It, well, I was 
smiling and so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot tell <laughs> so, so the reason why I said this is not so much because whether the endpoints are reliable. This is a lost opportunity for looking at safety of these uh, uh, drugs at such low LDL levels. Yeah. I don't believe there will ever be a trial done. Actually, there is. We're doing a trial. Oh, you're, you are. Oh, okay, well, then I Good. stand corrected. Anyway, <laughs> don't stop. Do not stop the let's, trial. Let's move into the last topic, uh, which is a, a very hot one, actually. It has to do with the polypill. Um, I guess the, this is a very interesting aspect that was first uh, brought into the attention uh, by Dr. Walt, as you know, and Dr. Law. Uh, I think it was in the British Medical Journal in about 2003. And that is, if we treat the population who walks in the street uh, with certain drugs, we might decrease the incidence rate of events by uh, cardiovascular events by 70 or 80 percent. And Actually, this was interesting, but industry has been very reluctant to get into this uh, because uh, the drugs that they want, their own drug to be on the market, not a number of drugs that are not theirs, then they feel it will be much, uh, much cheaper to have a polypill than the pill that we have, and then we'll have to distribute this. There are lots of reasons, at least I went through the industry, as you probably did, in which they really rejected this possibility. But this is the story now, and the story is Salim's group uh, has a study that was presented in this meeting, which is basically the use of a polypill in over 2,000 people aged 45 to 80 uh, without cardiovascular disease. And I don't know how you did it, but uh, this polypill in one group were actually five pills, hydrochlorothiazide, atenolol, ramipril, simvastatin and aspirin, and, and then the other groups were actually single drugs or a combination of them. And we are in a similar study, but it's following myocardial infarction, which is the, um, the use of three pills, which is an ACE inhibitor, a statin, and an aspirin. I asked Salim to comment on, first of all, to, uh, to congratulate you. I don't know how you can put five pills on one and have 2,000 people around. So that's my first question. Well, thank you, Valentin. Uh, this was done by 50 sites in India. My co-leader is not here, Dr. Price. He deserves a lot of credit. And a young man called Dennis Xavier uh, and Albin really drove the study. They did the legwork. So I, I want them to get credit. The company were very persistent. They were the ones who chased me down in India five years back and said, we really want to develop this. And the formulation of this is very complex. And they so it's a capsule. Now, remember, in any pill, 70 to 80% of the volume of a pill is excipient. It's not the after compound. And you need that to keep it stable. So to have a swallowable pill, you have to have much more purified stuff. Then you need to put it in such a way that sitting there, they don't interact. So they did it with microgranulations. And then it needs to dissolve at the right time in the right part of the gut. So it was a very clever formulation. Doing the trial, what we found was on blood pressure, the polypill did what just giving the three pills together did. On LDL lowering, the effects of the polypill was slightly lower than simvastatin alone, significant different, but 4% less, 27% with simvastatin alone, low dose, 
uh, 23% with this. Interesting, we can talk about it if we have time. The aspirin did not interfere with anything to the best we could see. Another sup two surprises in the study. We thought with increasing active ingredients, there would be more side effects and people would be more intolerant. We didn't see that. So the rate of discontinuation for side effects of any reason was the same across the five levels. That's encouraging. The th big surprise was that many non-antiplated drugs, non-aspirin drugs, had effects that suggest an antiplated drugs. For instance, simvastatin lowered thromboxane B2 substantially. The combination of etanolol plus ramipril lowered thromboxane B2 in the urine substantially, and thiazide tended to increase thromb thromboxane. These were all surprises to us. So that the polypill is not just, you put it all into a bucket, and it'll be as if you gave each one separately. And so the simvastatin slightly lower effect was not anticipated. We don't fully understand it. The effects on the thromboxane, we don't understand it. And the last point I want to make is, remember the mean blood pressure we started was 134. These are people who are not, who are sort of average people at that level. And the maximum reduction in blood pressure we got with the three pills, whether in the poly pill or in other ways, was only seven and a half millimeter mercury after correcting for a five millimeter drop in people who didn't get a blood pressure reduction. And this is half of what was predicted by, by Walden Law. Yeah, sure. So it may well be that the body has an autoregulatory mechanism that prevents your blood pressure dropping into the boots. And that is a good safety phenomenon. I want to hasten to add, because there have been some misreports in the literature, I think this is a first step. This is not the final sure. definitive step. Mm -hmm. And there mm -hmm. are many more studies, and you could probably comment on where else we should be going secondary prevention. Well, we are doing a similar study than you, yep. actually. Uh, but this is, in, is to look at three pills, uh, which are starting uh, ACE inhibitor and aspirin together, aiming, uh, as the FDA asked us to do, is to go for myocardial infarction. Because 40% uh, of people after a year of an MI, they are not taking the right. three drugs. And the two problems we find is one is adherence, three drugs versus one. And the other is the cost. You know, the cost of the three medications is about uh, $2 a day. And we think that the, having the three together may be $1 two weeks that you can go really to countries that cannot take these, uh, these, these drugs or, or they don't have the, 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 the financial uh, possibilities. Uh, what do you think, Bob? Well, you may have seen my comments circulating around. I, I first that. congratulate you. Thank and you. I think that this is a really important step. And uh, when I saw the presentation, I was, uh, I said, well, this is the public health approach. This right. is taking average doses and treating a broad swath of the population. You're, you know, where the American physician mindset kicks in is, oh my God, I can't titrate. I actually look at it exactly the opposite. Wow, now we can treat large parts of the population who aren't going to get anything. Uh, and certainly, we know that the average, the 65-year-old in the United States who has coronary disease takes between five and six medicines. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And many of them can't afford it. This will be interesting in cardiac failure, I suspect, you know. I mean, the, 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 yeah, the secondary prevention is of interest because you must take them any, anyway. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's very appealing uh, because I don't think we do a good job in treating all of these risk factors. 
And uh, although the study was done in India, I think it, this has a lot of connotations for what goes on in the U.S. If we were doing a better job, uh, perhaps not, but we're not. And I also think that issue about uh, whether or not that's going to limit physicians' ability to then titrate meds, well, I think you still have the ability to titrate meds in those patients who have very high LDL cholesterol or very high blood pressure. So I don't think that takes that out of the picture at all. Well, in fact, in our, in our pill, uh, we, we give uh, an ACE inhibitor starting with 2.5 milligrams. And for the first 10 days, we go into 5 milligrams and finally into 10. So you titrate with three. In fact, we did something similar to that, two and a half milligrams for the first two weeks, and then it went yeah. to five. And what we are now doing is, because you're obviously right, the obvious place is, surgery, is secondary prevention, where they anyway have to take the pills. So we are now doing our current low-dose pill versus a full-dose pill. We're designing a study, which may be very similar to yours, uh, Valentin, in secondary prevention, to look at tolerability and yeah. the effects on that. So, you know, you will have some flexibility in titration. I'm not even so worried about it. I'm much more of a public health guy that uh, the, the big populations and make sure that the biggest group of people can take it. Well, we go now around, and uh, we are going to ask uh, of the discussion we have today, uh, what has been the most striking thing to you? And I'd like to start with Cindy. Well, to me, the most exciting trial was the Watchman device trial, being the interventional cardiologist that I am. And I'm struck by the fact that 87% of the patients were able to discontinue warfarin, and they had as good of event rates as they did. And particularly with the new technology, being able to deploy the device with such high success rates is, was quite impressive. I was really interested in the polypill study. Uh, all of these trials were terrific, and I learned a lot from them, and they raised a lot of questions. But I think the whole concept of implementation of medications to patients. We certainly see problems with this in heart failure. We see in, in secondary prevention of coronary disease and the difficulty that we have of getting adequate implementation of life-saving medications and the concept of the polypill doing this in a large segment of the society. I think this has been an important first step, so I really congratulate you, Salim, and your co-workers. Yes, as, as a surgeon, I was uh, a little uh, disappointed that uh, the surgical reconstruction was not uh, proven to be effective, but I'm still very interested in the basic uh, question being asked in the STITCH trial. Uh, what is the role for revascularization, surgical revascularization? And, and I think that, in general, I'm pleased that uh, our discussions are so uh, focused now on, on high-impact uh, population interventions. I think that's, that's the, the, what the question that we're dealing with with the Jupiter trial, the, the issues raised by the polypill. So I think that, uh, globally speaking, we should be trying for high-impact therapies that are going to uh, improve the, the uh, population health. And? I, too, was uh, very interested in that imp uh, the PROTECT AF study with the Watchman device. Uh, despite the comments made here, I do think it's going to wind up being an interesting alternative to warfarin therapy for uh, quite a few patients, particularly those who uh, like the idea of invasive therapies that, that then change what their long-term medical uh, uh, therapy requirements are going to be. Although, on the other hand, I think it's going to be interesting to see down the road how that compares to some other drugs coming down, uh, coming along, like the direct thrombin inhibitors. Good, thank you, Robert. So, if I'm forced to pick just one, Valentine, I'm going to tip my hat to McMaster and say <laughs> that the polypill to me 
has, has some steps to go, as I think uh, Salim rightly noted. But uh, from a population health perspective, it could be tremendously important. And uh, I, I think that everything should be done to try to accelerate uh, the, the development and the further study of that therapy. Good. Sanji? I concur with uh, Bob. I think polypill, <coughs> uh, I was very impressed by that. It offers the promise of uh, pharmacologic modulation of global cardiovascular disease burden in conjunction with lifestyle intervention. I don't think we should forget lifestyle intervention. Uh, the challenges I see is how do we implement uh, this therapy in different uh, practice patterns across the globe. And the other uh, challenge and perhaps an exciting component would be can we make it into a boutique combination like horses for courses, you know, for primary prevention uh, probably it's not a good idea to have aspirin in the combo. Sure. And so for heart failure patients, uh, some other components. So if, if, this, if we have those ability to, so to modulate the combination, I think that will be very exciting. All that's going to come. Harlan? Well, you know, I think one of the things we have to say is that these meetings actually were interesting, in fact, because there was an absence of major trials that were going to be game changers for clinical practice. There was uh, the negative trials, the trials that don't really show benefit are critically important terms of helping us guide, but we didn't see the trials that really told us what to do differently in the sense of the options that we have are being able to help people. Preliminary data around polypill is interesting. The, int the most important thing to me is that I really like the idea that we're beginning to look globally. Recognizing the epidemic of cardiovascular disease is sweeping the globe, and we have an obligation to begin thinking broadly about the kind of strategies that might on not only be relevant here, but even more so are going to be relevant to millions and millions and millions of people in other countries that don't have quite the resources here, and what are those strategies, and beginning to test them, getting involved in that, engaging in that, and showing that we really are a worldwide community, a global community, is a very important thing, and I, I really like this trial, and the work that you're doing as well in, in Brazil and in other places on the polypill, as, as a sign of commitment to saying we're part of that, that community, so uh, that, I really Good. like that. Thank you. Salim? Well, I won't say anything about the polypill study, <laughs> but uh, I think if I can make a general observation, not about a trial, but about the, what's happened to these meetings, I think what's happening is increasingly the sessions where these major trials are being presented is a showcase. And what it's telling us is that randomized evidence in well-conducted large trials is increasingly beginning to drive medical practice. That can only be a good thing. And I don't like the word negative or positive. As long as the trials are well done and they're informative, they help us. Absolutely. And I want to congratulate my colleagues in the surgical area, in the interventional area, because it's a cultural change to do these trials. And uh, they're much more difficult trials. And uh, I, I look at this at a broader perspective. It is the maturation of cardiology that's happening. And that is only a good thing. Okay, so what I liked the most today were you guys. Uh, were fantastic. I really think it was a very interesting discussion on every issue from many different angles. And one has the satisfaction to, uh, to really to watch you uh, today and, and making comments about each of the four studies. Uh, of course, about the polypill study, I will make three comments. First, my warmest congratulations. Uh, the second, that I think um, secondary prevention has to be the next step. And we are in MI, you should be in cardiac failure, and issues, drugs that really have to be given 
and so forth. But perhaps the most important comment is be sure that we don't put pills in the world before we treat the world and to modify risk factors. Let's not be superficial and, 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 and just uh, do what we should not do. The pill is at the very end, not at the very beginning. Well, thank you very much indeed and, uh, for this opportunity, and I hope the audience uh, have enjoyed uh, this. Uh, the storm stop, we'll go to the airport, see what happens. But thank you very much to all of you. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.